like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. Acts 18 is where we're working our way through this uh, book of the New Testament. Um, I, Scott did announcements. I have just a couple things that I want to mention briefly as uh, we continue. Uh, I scheduled this week two things I'm very excited about that are coming up in the fall. The first one is September 6th. is going to be a baptism service. It's going to be at uh, Fred Straub's at the Straub House at Manor Oaks Farm. He's opened it up to us again. Uh, it'll be a service in the evening uh, outside again. And uh, Caleb Nelson and uh, Lauren Mack are going to be baptized, and that's going to be a great service. And then the first Sunday of October, I think it's the 4th, Randy Gaiman from Dayspring Christian Academy is coming back, and he's going to do another presentation to us about creation science. And there's more information about those events, both of them in your bulletin, but you'll want to be uh, at both of those. They'll be great um, days. That was two things I wanted to mention. The third is a source of great happiness. Uh, Linda Hickey told me this week that her doctor told her that her cancer is in remission. So we're very happy about that. Um, Linda has a few, well, you can applaud for that, I guess. When I came to this church, we didn't clap for anything. Now we clap for everything. I'm not sure. I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, Linda's got a few, uh, some issues to deal with because of the radiation and the effect it has on a body. But uh, that was just very good news. And uh, we're very pleased for Linda. Well, we opened God's word. And it is a tremendous privilege for me to be able to do that here in this uh, congregation. Um, I'm grateful for the trust that you give me and the opportunity that I have every week to say Turn in your Bibles with me. That's such a tremendous privilege. Acts 18 is the passage that we have, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through verse 17. So follow along in your copies of the Bible as we do. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region that Corinth is in, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, 
If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. If you read the book of Acts, it should be clear to you that the gospel that Christianity was born and thrived in a hostile world. And if you read the newspapers, it should become increasingly clear to you that our world is becoming more and more like this hostile world that we're reading about. When Paul entered a new city and began to speak about Jesus, uh, and he was told that Christianity is wrong, not true, laughably false, He was told that Christianity was immoral, or he was told, uh, actually more common in Paul's experience, that Christianity is dangerous. You should expect to hear that more and more and more. What you believe is wrong, what you believe is immoral, what you believe is dangerous, especially as the pace of the moral revolution quickens. And and when you put these stories that we've been reading about Paul, even if we just limit ourselves to his second missionary journey that we're in the middle of, Paul has been, as he encounters this hostile world, he's been mocked and derided, tried, and and his associates have been fined, and he's been uh, smuggled out of two towns, beaten and imprisoned, which leads to an obvious question, what kept Paul going? It's actually, I think, the point of these verses that emphasize Paul's encounter with these opponents here why did he keep going what kept him moving as he was going upstream in this hostile world making progress in the mission that jesus gave us actually i think more important for us this morning is not just what kept paul going but what keeps us going in this mission in an increasingly hostile world And my goal this morning is I want to answer that question, what keeps us going? And I want to surface from this text four helps uh, that we're going to look at this morning. And you'll be very happy to know that um, all of them start with the same letters. I don't do that very often. Uh, It's a banner day. Just wait to hear the poem at the end. So (laughs) I don't really have a poem at that. Here's number one. We're going to talk about these four. Gospel partnerships is number one, gospel partnerships. Paul moves from Athens to Corinth. Verse 4 tells us that he followed the same strategy that he always did. He went to the, uh, on the Sabbath to the synagogue to talk to Jews and Gentiles who read the Hebrew Bible, and he tried to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. But he did something else. In fact, probably prior to that, when he first went into the city, he met a couple whose name were Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla have just moved from Corinth to Rome, uh, excuse me, from Rome to Corinth. Uh, In fact, the text tells us they were in Rome when the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. This is the first time that we meet Aquila and Priscilla, and for the rest of the New Testament, they're almost a constant presence. Uh, They became some of Paul's closest friends and dearest associates. Now, they met through business. The text says that Paul went to see them because they were all tent makers. That's what my translation says. Um, this, I don't want to dispel any notions that you have in the New Testament that you've held dearly, but 
The text, the word translated tent maker here is actually a word that would be better translated leather worker. So uh, I'm not sure. There's a, a, a huge body of evidence that suggests Paul was from Tarsus, and Tarsus was right next to a mountain range that was well known for their black-haired goats, and people would take the goat hair and make waterproof tents out of them. There's a whole body of literature about this. The problem is that Paul probably learned his trade after he had left his home and gone to Jerusalem. So I'm not sure that Paul is the black-haired goat tent maker that we all think. Well, in the ancient world, tents were often made of leather, so maybe, um, maybe though Paul made saddles. And other leather goods, belts and things like that. I'm not sure. Well, uh, that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. And one of the things that's important about this text is we notice here, uh, this will become more important. Actually, we'll talk about it in Acts 20 when we get there. Paul supported himself in his ministry. He was a hard worker. And uh, during the day, he would work like this. And in the evenings and on the Sabbath, he would um, preach and teach um, this is where that phrase tent making comes from in missions. We, we talk about tent makers. Tent makers, maybe we should call them leather workers. I don't know. Tent makers are people who go to other countries and they go not in the more traditional mission sense with support from churches and friends and family at home. They go though with their occupation and during the day they work as farmers or nurses or engineers or physical therapists or teachers and then in the free time, they're planting churches and sharing the gospel and leading Bible studies. Uh, that is a new wave. It's an increasing wave in the world, especially as we think about how are we going to reach places where it is impossible for Christians to go as missionaries. Um, you don't need to be a pastor to be an effective missionary overseas. You could be a very effective teacher missionary businessman, missionary, uh, engineer, missionary. You, sh you should consider that. Well, um, this partnership uh, begins in the workshop. Uh, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they team up. We've done some excavation of the, the, the city of Corinth, and Paul arrived in Corinth just after a new market had opened up. It was the North Market, and it was designed very simply. It was a large, large square. There would be an open area in the center, a large square, and around would be buildings, very rudimentary structures, 13 feet tall, 13 feet long, and they varied in width for 8, 12 feet and um, the, the shop would be on the front, the, the first floor, and then at the back there'd be a very simple ladder that would climb up to a loft. And during this time, if this is where Paul and Aquila and Priscilla set up shop, probably Aquila and Priscilla they slept up top on the loft, and Paul would stay down at the bottom in the workshop at night. He would um, uh, bunk downstairs there. This partnership began in the workshop. But it continued in ministry. It seems like Aquila and Priscilla were already followers of Jesus when they showed up in Corinth. And they joined him in his ministry work there. And then when he left Corinth to go to Ephesus, they went with him. Uh, the church, in fact, met in their home in Ephesus. They'd moved out of the shop, and apparently in Ephesus they had a house that was large enough to host the church. Eventually they went back to Rome, and look what, uh, I printed this out on your, your, I think it's yellow, whatever color they are, yellow sheets in your bulletin. Acts, uh, excuse me, Romans 16.4, look what it says. Paul wrote, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. 
They risked their lives for me. We we don't know anything about that except those words. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. We don't know what they did. But you can imagine, it, it couldn't have been always easy or safe to be one of Paul's friends, right? I like to read in the New Testament about Paul's co-workers because it reminds me that Paul, this towering, co- this towering missionary, right? Paul valued and needed gospel partnerships. I wonder if you've ever noticed as you read through the, the New Testament epistles what Paul wrote about or what he thought about when he faced the prospect of being alone. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he wrote a letter, probably actually from Corinth during this time described here. He wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica and he was Thessalonica and he was very concerned about what was happening there. And he said to them, I was so concerned about you that I was even willing to be left alone and send Timothy to see how you were doing. It was not normal for him to be alone in his ministry. Or at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read a little bit. Again, it's on your yellow sheet. Paul writes, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, he says. I think this loneliness... Acts 18, verse 1, talks about Paul leaving Athens. Why did he leave Athens? I wonder if it was because he was there without his ministry partners. He wanted to be with them. Gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships like this are one of God's good gifts. If you talk to our outreach partners, they will tell you that gospel partnerships are at the same time one of God's great blessings and can sometimes be one of the great trials of serving overseas. Our church uh, seems to value this. I think many years ago when Cheryl Kuyper left from our congregation to go overseas for ministry, she very soon introduced us to Patty Toland, who was her ministry partner. And she came and, and we started supporting Patty because she was Cheryl's co-worker. We, we believe in gospel partnerships. Um, Liz Martin is officially, of course, one of our friends who lives overseas. But Carrie Jean keeps making it onto more and more of our lists. We'll claim you soon enough, officially. A couple of years ago, our church started supporting Fred and Joanna Defoy because they're church planning with Stephen Donna Niles in France. We believe in gospel partnerships and the importance of these. We believe in them outside the United States. I wonder if you believe them in your life, um, in your neighborhood, for the sake of the gospel in your neighborhood or where you work. Who can you, is there someone there that you can partner with for gospel purposes? Don't just, when you, when you go to a, a new job, don't just go in to think to yourself, I hope I can find a Christian here so that we can have a holy huddle during lunch and I don't have to talk to many of the pagans that are here. Okay? Don't think that. Think to yourself, who can I partner with for gospel purposes on this floor, in this office, in this department? Maybe, maybe you could find that, that Christian that you have been holy huddling with and, and say, suggest to them maybe you start praying together once a week for some of your coworkers. Gospel partnerships. 
Now, there's actually two forms of gospel partnerships that are in this text. Look at verse 5 of uh, chapter 18. Look what it says here. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, why is there this change in Paul's ministry? He was tent-making and then preaching on, uh, in, in the synagogue. What's now he's devoting himself exclusively to preaching and teaching. Why? Well, I think because uh, uh, Timothy and Silas brought financial support to him from the churches in Macedonia. They gave money and they freed Paul up to serve full time. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9. Remember, he writes this to the Corinthians. He's serving here in Acts 18. This is later writing back to them. He says, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Or look at Philippians 4, 15, and 16. It's there. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Isn't it interesting to see how the epistles open up the book of Acts, and sometimes the book of Acts opens up the epistles to us? They're meant to be read together, it seems. This is another way that gospel partnerships work, financial support. Here's another place where our congregation serves well. Sometimes, sometimes we do this in ways that you don't even know about. Um, remember last week Hannah was talking about her work in Morocco and her friend who needed the hospital bed, and she said, oh, thank you so much for the money that you gave for this. Most of you, that was the first time that you had heard about that. Here's what happened. Hannah had, had uh, written me, and she said, I have this friend, and she needs a hospital bed, and I, I would like to be able to say to her, my church in the United States gave money so that we could buy this bed. What an opening for the gospel, right? So I gave the, uh, presented this to the elders, and we had money in the Benevolence Fund, money that you have given generously, and we gave it toward this project in Morocco. Uh, this afternoon, uh, the missions committee is going to meet with uh, Liz and Carrie Jean, and after we do that, we're going to meet together, and I'm going to recommend to them that they, again, set aside some of Grace's funds to several different missions projects. We have some short-term trips that are coming up. We have some of our long-term uh, outreach partners who have needs, and we believe in gospel partnerships. Now, in verses 6 through 8, what happens in the text here is um, there's this explanation or this um, opening up here of some of the hostile nature of the response that Paul receives, some in, uh, elaboration on it. Look what verse 6 says. When they opposed Paul and became abusive, that's what my translation says. Your translation might say they reviled him. If you have a New American Standard, it says they blasphemed. They opposed Paul and blasphemed. Now, we're not exactly sure here who they were abusing. Probably Paul. Probably. But I wonder if some of the, the slander, the reviling, the, the blaspheming was actually against the Lord Jesus himself. One wonders what they might have said. It's not hard to imagine. There's no way that the Messiah could have been crucified. The law says that everyone who hangs on the tree is uh, cursed, and God would not have cursed his anointed Messiah. 
And we've heard about this Jesus, we've, whose mother, his mother, she was an adulteress. She was pregnant by someone other than her betrothed husband. And if your mother is an adulteress, you know what that makes you. How different is uh, this, how different this is, really, from how people respond to Jesus today, isn't it? There's practically not a person on the planet who thinks ill of Jesus. He's a prophet in Islam. He's a guru in Buddhism. He's a spiritual teacher in Hinduism. Everyone loves Jesus. Even if you uh, talk to many Jews today, they'll talk about Jesus being a good man and a good teacher. Religious people, secular people, everybody loves Jesus. And one of the reasons that he's so popular is because he's so malleable. He's so adaptable. You can use Jesus for anything. There was a picture uh, in the news uh, last week. It was taken during Pope Francis's visit to uh, South America. And the, he met with the president of Bolivia, a man by the name of Evo Morales. And, and Evo Morales gave the pope a crucifix. Uh, and it, except instead of Jesus hanging on a cross, the crucifix was of Jesus hanging on the communist hammer and sickle. <laughs> there were some... Uh, funny quotes from the newspaper because uh, Evo Morales is smiling as he had, and the Pope's like, <laughs> he just doesn't seem too happy. Um, Jesus, the good communist. Right? Jimmy Carter said last week, of course, that Jesus would approve of same-sex marriage. Everyone loves Jesus, and everybody can use Jesus for what they want, but not here in the actual book about Jesus. In Acts, either people worship him as Lord or revile him as a liar and fraud. What do they realize about Jesus that most people don't seem to? If you consider yourself an admirer of Jesus but not really a follower of Jesus, you should wonder about this. I wonder if, if, if the Jesus that you know is a lot like Silly Putty. Do you remember Silly Putty? I think they still sell Silly Putty. You go to the store and you could buy Silly Putty. It was came in an, a little egg, little plastic eggshell, and we, we open the eggshell and inside is this Play-Doh-like substance. It's a little bit more elastic than Play-Doh, and it was this ugly pink color. And you could manipulate the Silly Putty. And one of the things that we used to do with Silly Putty is we'd take and flatten it out on the comic strips in the newspaper. Does some of you remember doing this? You could flatten out Silly Putty on the newspaper, and the printing, newspaper printing is not real high quality, uh, and, and the, the ink and the colors would rub off so that when you peeled the Silly Putty off, there you had your comic strip on the Silly Putty. You could see it. It was so much fun. We were easily entertained. And, uh, uh, some people, that's how they treat Jesus. I mean, you're going to stamp on him what I think is right or what I like or the views that I have. Jesus, those, those are Jesus' views too. Everybody likes Jesus. In fact, many people use Jesus to criticize those who claim to be his followers, don't they? Is that really what Jesus would do? Jesus accepted everybody. Why don't you accept everybody? Jesus loves me, no matter who I am and what I do. I don't know why you don't. Right? What do the Jews in this passage understand about Jesus that, that makes them so angry? I wonder if, if, if you're just an admirer but not a follower, I wonder how accurate your understanding of who Jesus is, how, I wonder how accurate that is. 
Maybe if you knew him better, like Paul preached him, you wouldn't like him very much either. Or maybe you would. Maybe you'd love him. These men and women reject Jesus in the strongest way possible. So, so Paul does something like what he did in Acts chapter 14 in, in Pisidian Antioch. He, um, he shakes out the dust of his clothes. It's a symbol, like washing your hands, and he leaves. He has fulfilled his mission. They're responsible for their own choices. This is not a friendly parting of the ways. <laughs> they don't agree to disagree. There's just a break. And then I think what happened next must not have made things any better. Paul leaves the synagogue and starts holding weekly meetings at the house right next door. (laughs) Uh, We were driving by the Manor Shopping Center the other day, and uh, one of my children said to me, Now who who in their right mind, why in the world did they put a Burger King right next to McDonald's? (laughs) Well, here's Paul preaching about Jesus right next to the synagogue in the home of this man, Titius Justice. Then this must not have helped either. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. You know, this section of Scripture, except for the passage that we get to, we'll get to in Ephesians, this passage of Scripture mentions the most personal names of anywhere else in the book of Acts. You think of some of the people that we've studied and thought about who became followers of Jesus. Someday we're going to meet these folks. It'll be interesting to talk to them about what they experienced and saw. Most of the people who will populate heaven will be non-white and never have spoken English in their life. Except when they're in heaven, because that, of course, is the language of heaven, right? (laughs) No. No. Won't won't that be awesome? Tish's justice. What was it like? Lydia, tell us about your experience. Oh. Now, we come to verses 9 through 11 here, and uh, this is, I think, the center, actually, of the passage, the heart of it. Paul has a vision of Jesus himself. This is the the, uh, third vision that Paul has um, and uh, that leads him in, in ministry. And they're usually not, they don't usually bring great news to Paul. The first vision he had right was on going to Damascus. He saw Jesus and, and, and uh, he's converted. And later Jesus says to him, um, I'm gonna, you're going to suffer a lot for my name. Not good news. Second vision, he gets called to Macedonia. Come over and help us. And what happens when he shows up at Philippi? He gets beaten and thrown in jail. Not good. So when Jesus shows up, I mean, Paul is thrilled and amazed. This is my Lord. But he must have at the same time for a moment thought to himself, uh-oh. What does this mean? God's not in the habit of calling his people to comfortable places. I'm not sure what God's will for you is, but I am fairly certain it doesn't include a life devoted to leisurely strolls on sandy beaches. You know, it's summer. I hope that you get at least, if you love to do this, I hope you have at least one or two leisurely strolls on sandy beaches. I hope that happens for you. Um, But I am fairly certain that it is not God's long-term plan for you. It's not the center of his plan for you, for you to expand your seashell collection. It's fairly certain. Jesus appears to Paul and he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Paul, afraid? Paul isn't afraid of anything, is he? Oh, oh. Maybe, maybe Paul is afraid because he remembers what happened in Philippi. It's the same, same story, right? 
The Jews are raising Cain about what's going on. And maybe he's thinking that there's another beating coming in his life. Maybe he's intimidated by Corinth. Corinth is a large city. Uh, estimates vary, maybe 100,000 people, and it was well known for his, its immorality. Maybe Corinth is just intimidated by being there. He's a little afraid. Maybe Aquila and Priscilla have been talking to him. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla got kicked out of Rome. Claudius the emperor did. Uh, It happened in AD 49. The Roman historian Suetonius writes about this. He said that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because there was rioting going on as, as the Jews followed their leader, Crestus. That's what Suetonius wrote. Many people think that Suetonius had confused the name Crestus Uh, a more common Latin name with the Greek name Christos. And that what had happened is the gospel had moved to Rome, and just like in all the other cities, the Jews had risen up in protest over this teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, and maybe the same thing has happened in Rome, and there's been riots, and Claudius has kicked out all the Jews, and maybe Aquila and Priscilla are saying, "Uh uh-oh, this is just like what happened in Rome. This is not going to go well for us, Paul, I I don't think. So Paul's afraid. Maybe he's, he's anxious about starting something like that. Well, here's the second help in this passage for swimming upstream. We already talked about gospel partnerships. Now, secondly here, God's presence. We have God's presence. Verse 9, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. It's one of the most common promises in the Bible, isn't it? Don't be afraid, I'm with you. He said it to Moses before he sent Moses to Egypt. He said it to Joshua before he sent Joshua into the promised land. He said it to Jeremiah before he sent Jeremiah to prophesy, do not be afraid, I am with you. When God says I'm going to be with you, it means he's going to actively assist. He's going to, he's going to show up and his presence is going to be there and it's going to help Paul. I wonder as I read this text and as I think about the Bible story, I wonder if this promise of God's presence is something that is easier to see in retrospect looking back than it is to see in the moment. I'm following my Bible reading plan through the book of Joshua. I just finished. Joshua is all about Israel's military conquest of the land. And all over the text it says the Lord is with them. The Lord fought for them. The Lord delivered their enemies into the hands. The Lord made their, confused their enemies. And, and it's clear here God is empowering and he's with the Israelites as they go into the promised land. I wonder how much of it they felt at that moment because the soldiers still had to suit up to go into battle. They still had to sharpen their swords. They still had to... Um, Uh, swing those swords and shoot their arrows. They still had to plot and plan. And yet in the midst of it, God was at work. I wonder if God's presence is something that is better known in hindsight. That if you want to know really about this promise and what it means, don't be afraid, I'm with you. If you want to know what it really is like in, in life, you need to talk to someone who's walked with Christ for 50 years. Someone who can look back on their life and and see how when they were 30 or 25 or 40, at the time they didn't know it. But now they, they look back and they say, oh, 
God did this, and he was active in this way, and he was here, and he did that. I wonder if that's how the promise of God's presence, when we see it. I think maybe that's why we sing songs, like to remind ourselves, wait, we're speaking to ourselves. Whatever God does, whatever he ordains is right. Uh, he, he'll, he'll uh, I won't fail. I'm not going to fall. His, his hand is going to hold me and guide me and lead me. I wonder if that's how it works most often. Don't be afraid for I am with you. The promise comes at the beginning. The fulfillment sometimes we only see many years out. Aquila and Priscilla are packing their stuff. Maybe they didn't have time to pack. The edict goes out from Rome. They've got to leave. Huh. Is God with us? I don't know. They didn't know they were going to meet Paul in Corinth. Oh, he certainly was with them. God's presence. Now, third here, notice in this passage, God's promise. God's promise. Verse 10. For I am with you and no one is going to attack. Here's the promise. No one is going to attack and harm you. Now, this is a very specific promise. It brought great comfort to Paul, but uh, we should warn one another as we read this here. It is limited in its applicability and it's limited in its duration. Paul, he's saying to him, this ministry is not going to be like your ministry in Lystra. You're not going to be stoned. You, don't, you won't be arrested. You won't have to run from town in the middle of the night. Don't have that fear. Now, we know this promise is limited in duration because later Paul was arrested. So this is not a promise that went for Paul's entire life. And it's not a promise either that we can claim ourselves. It's limited in applicability. Don't claim this promise for yourself. No harm's going to come to you, especially if you live in Iran or Nigeria or Syria. But this verse does, I think, remind us of the promises that we can claim. The, the promise that we is ours is that whatever happens to us is not going to be ultimately determinative. Look again at 2 Corinthians 4. How often do I quote from this chapter? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. It can be bad. It can be very, very bad. But it's not the end. It can be discouraging, but it's not destructive. This is not a guarantee that you will have no troubles, but it is a promise that those troubles will not determine your ultimate destiny. I, I've quoted this before. I've told you this story before, I know, but it's worth repeating. It should, you should hear it every few years or so. It's the story of John Patton. John Patton was a missionary who left Scotland in the 1800s to go to the New Hebrides. Today those islands are called Vanuatu in uh, Southeast Asia, those islands are. John Patton left, and he went at a time when the Scottish church had just sent uh, two other missionaries to this same part of the world, and they were, uh, within days of landing on the shores, they were eaten by cannibals. Well, John Patton was at one of these meetings where he was talking about going, and a man by the name of Mr. Dixon said to him, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Don't go. You'll be eaten by cannibals. 
And Patton replied to him, this is a wonderful line, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. (laughs) How in this hostile world do you survive without the Bible's promise that it is Jesus, to quote the Gettys, who commands your destiny? Now, in verses 12 through 17 here, we see how the Lord fulfilled his promise to Paul, this promise that no harm would come to him, and it has to do with a trial before Gallio. Gallio was the first representative of the central Roman government that Paul encountered. Gallio, his brother, was Seneca, the famous Stoic um, philosopher. His father was an influential man in Rome, had the ear of the emperor. Gallio was a big deal. And there's this trial that happens before Gallio. Here's the charge, verse 13. This man, the Jews brought this claim, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, which law are they talking about? Uh, Is it the Jewish law, the laws of Moses, maybe? Um, Judaism has a special relationship in the Roman Empire. Judaism is a, uh, a legally protected sect. It's a legally protected religion. The Jews are allowed to worship God in the way that they choose and are not obligated to worship the Roman or Greek gods. And maybe what these Jews are claiming is they're saying to Gallio, yeah, Judaism has protections, but this man is not teaching, he's a rabbi, we know that, but he's not teaching Judaism the way it's supposed to be practiced. So he doesn't deserve the protection that we get. You need to order him to stop because he's not teaching within the law. That's possible. Or it's maybe the law that he has in mind is the Roman law. Remember Aquila and Priscilla had been kicked out of Rome? You remember, uh, uh, maybe they said to Gallio, Claudius just expelled people, followers of Christ, and he is one of them. It's a threat to Roman rule. Now, importantly for this storio, storio, Gallio, storio, Julio, Manio. So, Gallio, <laughs> I had the worst time. I keep wanting to say Galileo, and that's not right either. So, Gallio steps in and uh, dismisses the case. Uh, it was a very important step. Uh, I, there's a couple bullet points that, that uh, I want to talk about here. This teaches us a couple lessons I think are important. I'm going to go in the reverse order of what's written there, just if you're filling those in, because this morning it made more sense to do it the other way around. So um, what happens here, verse um, 14, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to him, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. This is a very important decision that Gallio makes. And actually it forms the basis. It's one of the important passages in how we think about the relationship between the church and the state. One of the things that this teaches us is that the church and state occupy different spheres. They occupy different spheres. What a relief this must have been for Paul. <laughs> what a weapon this came for him. See, Gallio has decided the nature of Christianity was not something for him to decide. 
It was close enough for Judaism that it could receive Roman protection. He's not going to interfere in this. It's outside of his Jewish jurisprudence, outside of his control. From now on in the book of Acts, Paul's going to use this. What he's going to do is he's going to argue, I'm a follower of the Old Testament. I believe in the Hebrew Scriptures, and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And many of the Roman judges that he meets aren't going to care about that little distinction. This passage is a helpful reminder for us today that the church and the state, they occupy different spheres. Church speaks to the heart. The state speaks to the law. And when the church or state step on one another into the spheres, into the other spheres, it's usually bad for both of them. We have the issue that has been at the fore in recent years has been the state encroaching upon the church. Uh, Tuesday of this week, a group of Catholic nuns lost their appeal in a Denver courtroom, the Little Sisters of the Poor, because they believe that some of the mandates of the Affordable Care Act uh, concerning contraception coverage in insurance violates their religious convictions. They lost that case on Tuesday. I'm sure there will be appeal. Um, During the arguments uh, in the same-sex marriage decision, uh, Chief Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, asked the government lawyer, what's going to happen if same-sex marriage becomes the law of the land, what's going to happen to nonprofit religious organizations that have theological or biblical objections to same-sex marriage? What will happen to their tax-exempt status? And the government lawyer said, we're not sure. That's an open question. Uh, What will Christian colleges like Lancaster Bible College do? Will they be able to continue to participate in the federal student aid program if they don't offer married student housing to same-sex couples? Different spheres. When the church tries to control the law, that's the story of Europe, isn't it? When the church tries to control the law and the state tries to control the heart, both church and state are harmed. It's bad for both of them. Maybe this is another aspect of of hopefulness here. The state and the church work in different spheres. What the state does is somewhat to us, a matter of difference. Gallio didn't authorize Paul to speak. He didn't command him to speak. He didn't support him. He doesn't control him. Paul speaks under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look how he fulfills his promise through Gallio. Now, there's something else that happens here in this passage in verse 17 that's disturbing. It tells us something else as we read this passage. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Poor, poor Sosthenes. And what happened? There's a Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1 who is mentioned as a Christian. Maybe it's the same guy, I don't know. It, what appears to have happened is that Sosthenes right now is the president of the synagogue. He replaced Crispus because Crispus became a Christian, and Sosthenes got the job. And maybe Sosthenes was the one making the case before Gallio. He was really arguing that Paul should be censored. So he's the chief uh, litigator here. And Gallio, because he dismisses the crowd, I'm not going to decide this stupid law, this stupid decision. You Jews are bringing this. No. And he kicks them out. Maybe the crowd in response says, yeah, this is a stupid case. And, and there's anti-Semitism here. Gallio actually had a reputation for some anti-Semitism, and the crowd attacks Sosthenes, and Gallio doesn't do anything. What, is, what do we learn about this? I think this passage also reminds us here, don't rely 
on the state. Don't rely on the state. On the one hand, Gallio makes a great decision. We're like, yes, good, protection. This is helpful for Paul. But then he lets this injustice go right by. Don't rely on the state. I don't mean that we're supposed to be vigilantly suspicious or in a constant state of rebellion. I mean, we don't trust in it. We don't get our authority from it. We don't get our message from the state. Um, What the state does is, in some sense, to our mission, a matter of indifference. Even if what the state does is good, and I hope it is often, it, it still is not the source of our confidence. Our trust is in Jesus Christ. We do not sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Washington and its Congress. (laughs) Do not sing that. So don't rely on the state. We rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, look at what Jesus is doing at work in this mission with Paul, how he's fulfilling his promise. He's working for Paul. He's protecting Paul. He's promising Paul. Remember, in the first few verses of Acts 1, Luke says, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about what the Lord Jesus began to do. That's the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus began to do. The same Lord, though, who came as the incarnate baby, the Lord who walked the hills of Galilee and preached and healed and then walked to Jerusalem where he was crucified, died, and rose again, is the same Lord who is directing the work of the Apostle Paul from his place as the exalted Son of God at God's right hand. Same Lord. Why did Jesus come in the first place to seek and save the lost? He came for the sake of love, to rescue us. We who were alienated from God because of our sin, he came for the sake of love, to live the life we could not have lived and die the death we deserve to die. He died on the cross for us in our place. He bore the wrath of God. And everyone who turns to him finds life and forgiveness. Everyone who trusts in him. Why did he come for the sake of love? Why is he in heaven directing the Apostle Paul for the sake of love? He wants the word out. He wants everyone to hear it. He wants you to believe it, this Lord. Now finally here, our hope for swimming upstream against the hostile world, God's people, God's people. Verse 10, he's continuing to speak to the Apostle Paul and he says, Because I have many people in this city. Now, what what does this mean here? I have many people in the city. Two things. Back in Acts 15, 14, uh, James said this. He said, Simon has described to us, Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So there's a people being formed. But I think more specifically, this is a verse that's about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Um, There are chosen people in Corinth who have been chosen, but they just don't know it yet. They're, they're God's people, and Paul's supposed to stay there to preach the gospel so they can hear it and turn and believe. Remember what Acts 13:48 says? It's written down there again. Um, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. When were they appointed for eternal life? Before the foundation of the world. Who appointed them for eternal life? God did. When did they believe? When they were invited to believe through the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Remember what our doctrinal statement says about this. I read this line to you often because I think it's so good. 
God works everything in accordance with his perfect will. His foreknowledge is exhaustive and does not depend on human decisions and actions. But our doctrinal statement also says his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. I think it's a wonderfully balanced statement. And actually the balance is here in Acts chapter 18. God says to Paul, on the one hand, the Lord Jesus says, I have many people here in this city. That's a very strong sovereign statement. And yet, when Paul left the synagogue, notice what he said to them back here in verse 6. He did not say to them, too bad, I guess you're not among God's people. I know you really want to believe in Jesus, but apparently you've not been appointed for eternal life, so I'm sorry. That's not what he says at all. He's very clear about who bears the responsibility for their rejection of Jesus. Now, some of you struggle with this. Notice this here. You struggle because of these verses that are so strong on the sovereignty of God, and they make you want to look for loopholes somewhere. This were only not in the Bible. Things would be a whole lot easier, right? But notice here the truth. God has people in this city, and it's actually motivation for Paul to speak. This is why he should speak. Because there are people in Corinth who are going to respond. Election doesn't discourage evangelism. It guarantees that it's going to be fruitful. D.A. Carson wrote a wonderful little book about his father. His father's name was Tom Carson, and he was a pastor in Quebec in the 70s and 80s. Maybe the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was the period of time when Quebec, French Canada, was a hard, hard place to work. Don Carson... uh, describes how he and his siblings were beaten up in school a lot and called dirty Protestants, except they weren't called dirty Protestants. Uh, Christian pastors were jailed in Quebec for preaching the gospel. Tom Carson was there. He's a native of Great Britain. He was in French Canada. He was there pastoring a church, evangelizing. And, and he got, over the years, multiple offers to leave French Canada and go to English-speaking Canada, where there were... Um, comparatively thriving congregations that were interested in the great Bible teaching that Tom Carson was doing. And Don says when he, when he was uh, uh, younger in his 20s, he used to say to his dad, why don't you take any of those offers and get out of this place? This is like this so hard serving here. Why don't you go somewhere else? And Tom Carson responded to him and said, God has many people here. Don't you think that's still true? We have no written guarantee like we do here for Corinth, but doesn't God still have people in Germany and Peru or Morocco or Turkey or Afghanistan or France? Doesn't he still have people who are his people but they just don't know it yet in Lancaster County? Sure he does. I imagine we have some of them. They come to church every Sunday. They come. And... They have no, they're convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that the world revolves around them and they have no apparent appreciation for God or the name of Jesus and they're probably drooling on someone right now in the nursery. If God has no more people left in Lancaster County, why are we still here? I'm not sure of all the discussion that took place 50 years ago when this building was built by Calvary Baptist Church. They might not have had it in mind, but you can guarantee that Jesus had it in mind. He still has people here. 
church needs to be here. And when Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster bought this building 40 years ago, they bought the building, maybe unconsciously, I don't know, but with the understanding that God still has people here in Millersville and on the campus and in Lampeter and Conestoga and Lancaster City. If you read this verse and you're looking for a loophole, you don't have the same understanding of election that Jesus does. That's why we're here, because there's people, people who live on Walnut Hill Road and people who live in your neighborhood and little children who come to Awana on Wednesday nights are God's people, but they just don't know it yet. So we tell them. That's why we're here. It's what we're supposed to be doing. It's our mission. Here we are, swimming swimming upstream. Christianity in a hostile world. Just like at the beginning, what keeps us going? What keeps us going is because we have a Lord who died and rose again and made to us certain and sure promises. And it's because of him that we speak and speak and speak. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord, we come before you and we recognize that you are a mighty God. You reign and rule over objections and hostility and um, governmental authorities. You rule and reign over injustice. And we thank you also as we come together that you are not just a mighty God, but you're a gracious God. And how we thank you that you, 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 you very gently said to Paul, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Lord, we confess there are moments they overlap often when we need desperately to hear both of those things. We worship you because of your grace, because by your grace you have called us to your son and we have found life in his name. And it is our desire to be ever more faithful in following you in doing the mission that you're fulfilling the mission that your great son gave us. Oh, help us. Help us to swim upstream confidently and joyfully and not to be afraid. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.